0: It's Jim, it's the World of Bonds, it's Saturday the 27th of January 2024. This is for professional investors only, never ever investment advice. I'm coming live and direct today from my hotel room in Manhattan, a view of the Empire State Building out my window, and incessant pointless car and truck horns blasting all hours long for no good reason and the smell of weed drifting up from the street down below uh, and all the the legal weed dispensaries uh, in in the hood where I am um, nomad. The area is called north of Madison uh, Square Park. Anyway, uh, I'm mainly here seeing clients, but also got to go to the always excellent Barclays Global Macro and Inflation Conference. which I think incidentally was my very first overseas conference that I attended back in 1998. Um, Good then, good now. I've also had the chance to meet some Wall Street economists and strategists from places like Goldman's, JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley, etc, etc, and discuss with them things like bond markets and also the big topic of 2024, the presidential elections. Um, I won't attribute any of the political views that any of them gave, Um, it is seen as a bit of a minefield to make public predictions uh, about politics at the moment in this febrile environment, so uh, none of them would thank me. Anyway, I will start though back at the Bartleys conference with a few headlines from a presentation I enjoyed by uh, Paul Antas. Um, He is uh, an economics professor at Harvard University who focuses on the economics of globalisation. I think the the first thing um, he pointed out of of six things I quickly want to note one, deglobalisation hasn't happened yet. So for all the talk about deglobalization, there's no real sign of it happening on any major scale. Having said that, world trade as a share of world GDP is lower than its peak back before the global financial crisis. It got up to 30% on that metric. It's now at 27%, but it's been very stable in, in recent years. It kind of fell after the GFC. And despite things like Brexit and China trade wars, um, we haven't seen any any change in that number really, or a reacceleration in de-globalisation. So when we talk about it, it's not something that's really happened. Secondly, just to point out, uh, as, as part of that number not really moving, it's been incredibly resilient in the face of COVID. So COVID, despite the trade disruptions and so forth, didn't didn't cause a massive uh, deglobalisation wave uh, despite all the things, not just the the, stru- the, the kind of uh, disruptions but also the stories about people wanting to be more self-reliant and so forth. We've not seen that impact greatly on global trade so Covid didn't have as much impact as perhaps you might have thought it would US and China are though in some sort of trade war and uh, stories here in the States today about Trump you know, it wouldn't just be a 10% tariff, but I think someone even mentioned 60% tariffs on China and an escalation of that trade war if, uh, if Trump's elected president. Um, so far, though, whilst the US-China trade war has impacted the geography of global trade, it hasn't impacted the value. So we've seen a, a change in stuff. People have moved to Mexico. Uh, Chinese firms have moved to Vietnam and so forth. So there's been a change in where p- trade happens, where business happens, but the value hasn't been affected. The next ones are all fairly similar, but um, the other things Paul talked about were that friendshoring, shoring, moving to Canada, moving to Mexico for your factories or moving domestically, um, may backfire on companies that do that because of the costs. The uh, link to that that... Um, most US companies that he looked at don't have diversification at all in their suppliers. They have, uh, for, for every component they buy, they have one supplier, one country of, uh, of supply. And so there isn't a lot of resilience built into the system. So it'd be very, very costly for companies to build in the kind of resilience that people are saying that they need. They are reliant on one country for the bulk of their, uh, their inputs. Um, and finally, the if we are talking about um, where de-globalization might be the most costly to the world economy it would be in labour markets so things like um, not allowing immigrants Brexit and, uh, you know, the immigration story in the US in particular about not allowing people in certain countries, for instance. Um, that's where it starts to hurt. And you, you do lose things like innovation very quickly when you don't allow uh, people to move across borders. So those were his kind of six main points. He also made points about well what are people are forced to choose in future about whether you you belong to the Chinese bloc or the US bloc if that if there is an escalation in trade wars it may not be as simple as the US perhaps thinks it might be people that you thought might have joined uh, the US bloc may have different economic imperatives now think about Chile maybe where 50% of Chilean copper goes to China, uh, which bloc do they choose if uh, if they're forced to make that decision and you're seeing that kind of thing happen uh, I guess a little bit around Russia, Ukraine with a bit more of a non-alignment away from typically countries that would have supported the US consensus haven't done so. So there, there is a bit of an unknown about what which way people break if they're forced to make that decision. So I thought all those things were interesting. I'll go and read some more stuff from uh, Paul Landras of, of Harvard. I also thought the speech by um, Maya McGuinness of the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget was really good, pretty scary. Um, She spoke off the cuff about the challenges that the US debt to GDP uh, faces over coming years, thanks to the deficits deficits they're running, 7% deficits at the moment. Now, this is a bipartisan organisation, and and it's worried about the future profile of US debt to GDP. It doesn't see any political will uh, on any side, despite people talking, you know, the, the the right talk no one wants to do anything about it no one has any interest in cutting entitlements no one wants to raise taxes and as we have a an aging population medical and social security costs just keep going up um i was though so impressed by a speech i googled the organization committee for a responsible federal budget um and found this gem on wikipedia so on the front page of their wikipedia um page there's a kind of summary box on the top right um it has this sort of thing. What type of think tank is it? Where's it located? What's the leadership? Blah, blah, blah. It also has revenue and expenses for the organization for the last year. It has, I guess, 2016. And wait for it. Revenues, listen, dollars, $1.109 million. Expenditures, $3.23 million dollars. Um, anyway it made me laugh that uh, this organization is is presumably running some sort of deficit that uh, looks pretty big to me much bigger than the US is anyway onto the new in terms of percentage not in terms of absolute numbers of course onto the New York economists and strategists and the debate about the, the possibility of a soft, landing is kind of over you know this rare unicorn that we've never seen before that debate is gone now i think uh because the latest gdp numbers for the fourth quarter of last year on the back of a stellar third quarter super super strong we have uh, record low levels of jobless claims we have got no sudden rise in financial distress bankruptcy are going up a little bit but generally default rates are, are really exceptionally low and the housing market has stabilized from um, you know the the, the kind of wasn't a fall in house prices really, but it was a fall in activity on the back of those high mortgage rates. But even that seems to be improving again. So we kind of did get a soft landing. We've had a soft landing. Uh, Inflation is back to target on the short term annualized measures. And I think, you know, you could be pretty Pleased with the U.S.'s um, economic experience, I guess it has come at the expense to go back to the kind of deficits and um, the fiscal stimulus that the economy has had in the face of high interest rates. But nevertheless, a soft landing it was. Now, thinking what that means for the Fed, the Fed's Powell gave uh, remember those really dovish comments about the prospects for monetary policy in the states in December. Since then, we have though had three or four Fed members rolling back on this quite big time, for instance, Waller, Bostic, um, But there is still plenty of room for the Fed to take away what is a tight financial conditions from the Fed at the moment. So while perhaps the market did get ahead of itself in terms of the number of cuts, six or seven cuts this year. There's plenty of room for at least the three that the Fed have talked about and that only really gets us back to something like neutral, probably something still above neutral. So in March, we will be eight months after the last Fed hike. That is exactly in line with the historical average gap between the last hike and the first cut. and so that historical average very much still in play that we, we hit that. The market says it's 50-50, whether it's March or not. Um, Goldman Sachs actually think it's March, May and June uh, in three consecutive meetings, 25 basis points in each. Um, but. Therefore, we come back to the age-old question from Uncle Jim's World of Bonds. If we have had a soft landing, why is everyone in the United States so miserable about the economy? And we've talked a lot about this uh, on the podcast about why the sentiment indicators are, are so weak. Um, and the simple answer is, is the price level. So... It's not really the inflation rate that's so important. It's the the consistent sticker shock that consumers experience, even if price rises, have moderated quite sharply recently. I mean, I had had lunch at Pret-a-Manger in New York, I have kind of been boycotting Pret a little bit in the UK because of the inflation they experience. The other thing that winds me up is you have to become a member to get lower prices. So I f- always feel I'm paying a premium for not signing up to their card. So that, that, that an, it kind of winds me up a little bit. Anyway, I do like Pret food though. So I had lunch at Pret yesterday. I had a half sandwich because I'm on a diet. I had a juice and a yoghurt that cost and that's in one of these rare places where there isn't a suggested 20% tip on top of that and in some places I've been to recently a 4% food surcharge added on as well so you can end up paying uh, a quarter again on top of that anyway so sticker shock still persists it will probably or very possibly drive the outcome of the presidential election this year There's a Yale economist called Ray Fair, sounds a bit uh, like a Cockney villain in a Guy Ritchie film, but actually um, he produces political forecasts based on economic indicators. And his models put a lot of emphasis on inflation, but the inflation that has the most predictive power for elections Isn't the inflation rate in the the months leading up to the election, it's average inflation over the entire four-year term. And that's obviously bad news for Joe Biden, having had those you know double digit inflation rates at some point and a huge rise in the price level. Having said all of that though, Fair's model does have Biden Winning the popular vote and winning 51.5% share of the popular vote. Um, Although the Democrats in the House race, he has them um, behind 50% slightly there. Remember, though, 51.5%, even if Biden does get that in the popular vote, may not be enough to win the presidency. Remember that Hillary Clinton won the popular vote and lost the election to Trump. So in the swing states and uh, Michigan, Georgia, Um, Wisconsin, Nevada, Arizona, Pennsylvania, I think are the main swing states. I think Biden's behind in all of them but one, which I think is Michigan. And the things that are the key issues there, he is behind on. So in those states, immigration. China policy and the economy are the three key issues, and he's behind on all of those issues and only does well on one of the, the other key issues, which is um, women's rights, abortion, obviously, and uh, the, re- the repealing of Wade Rowe is, is, is a big political Uh, debate where Democrats will do well and Democrats will do well uh, uh, for women voters um, relative to men voters who will will largely go Republican by the look of it. So overall too close to call but um, I think people probably in their gut feel that Trump may have it and if Trump gets elected then steepener trades seem to be the, the, the way to go. Um, Twos tends to steepen by 100 basis points, someone uh, reckons. And most of this is down to the fiscal stimulus that Trump is thought to be planning. So huge tax cuts for companies and rich individuals uh, means more bonds and more bonds means a steeper yield curve. At the same time, I think there's still a bit of a suspicion that Trump might put pressure on the Fed or put someone in the Fed that would keep rates lower than they perhaps need to be. So you end up with a kind of inflationary stimulus at the same time as short rates are kept lowish and that leads to a steeper curve and probably a bear steepening for bonds. So that, that's, that seems to be uh, what people are talking about at the moment. So plenty more to come out of, uh, of what I've learned over the past couple of days. I'll save that, though, from when I'm back in Blighty, um, so much more on the way of US economic stuff to come in future editions of Uncle Jim's World of Bonds. Enjoy your Saturday night, Sunday morning. Bye.